Well, hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Patrick Milliken from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, thanks for tuning in to another of our virtual events. And it, it is a real treat and an honor to have uh, one good friend of mine and one new friend, uh, Jay Todd Scott, uh, longtime friend, author of numerous books, including this killer new book called The Flock, which we'll be talking about. A little bit of a departure, but still, yeah. within, your, still within your wheelhouse in a lot of ways. Uh, really look forward to getting into this. And uh, Philip Prakasi, who has written this absolutely killer new book, uh, A Child Alone with Strangers, which, um, man, there's really something for everybody in this book. And we'll, we'll get into that. It's a fantastic mashup of different styles. Um, also, I got before we get started, um, what a beautiful design. Yeah, uh, it's a great cover. Yeah. Really yeah. Happy. Yeah, they did. I think Claire Nogle, I think, is the design. I'm going by memory. I think this is in the back flap jacket, but yeah, so she designed it. And uh, and I thought they did a, I thought they did a really nice job, especially I love the red spine, which was a surprise to me when I saw that. So I didn't yeah, see it until I saw nice. the book. That, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. And Philip has sent us some cool, very cool uh, book plates with the same design, which I've tucked mm -hmm. in. So um, I'm flying solo here tonight, folks. But as always, if you have questions for Todd or Philip, go ahead and put them in the comments field, and I'll be happy to, to keep my eye on those as we go along. Um, and if you'd like uh, to order a copy, I will also put the link. I may have to do it after the program's over, but you know how to get in touch with us if you'd like copies of either book. The holidays are coming. Buy That's one, right. Buy two. Yeah. And, the, and these are heartwarming Christmas gifts. These are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So nothing nice says story. nothing says holiday cheer like those two books right there <laughs> exactly. about a boy and his panda right yeah right <laughs> well let's just first um let's kind of dive in and um i first met todd uh when this book came out the far empty and here's a one of the original copies which had this awesome cover design right and, um, that's up on the wall you can't you can't see it's on on my side over here so right and so you published, I think, four novels, right, in that in that particular series. Uh, published three in that series, and then Lost River was standalone. So it was okay. Oh, far empty, yeah, far empty. High white sun. This side of night's kind of the border trilogy. Uh, Lost River is a standalone crime novel, but it's still kind of in the same vein. Just moved from Texas to Kentucky, which is where I am now, in the, and now the flock. So right. So in in the um, in the Lost River, I know that 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 came out you know right in the beginning or in the middle of the the covid pandemic yes. first year difficult time to have a book released and i know that it was that particular book was uh, one that was very personal to you uh and near and dear to your heart so before we move on to the flock would you mind just saying a few words about that book yeah yeah lost rivers unfortunately and i think probably uh, you know uh, phil can Philip talked to this a little bit too. You know, it was tough writing during the, uh, the COVID, you know, heart of the COVID years, the teeth of the COVID time. Uh, it was tough publishing. And so Lost Ripper was a book I'd long wanted to write uh, about my home, Kentucky, again, which is where I, I I'm, am now. Um, I had done uh, drug work out here in Kentucky at the, about the middle part of my career. Uh, had seen the earlier uh, start of the opioid uh, crisis, which is now plaguing all of the U.S. Um, so I really wanted to kind of write about that kind of from a unique 
uh, a viewpoint and from a very personal viewpoint from stuff I had seen and other stuff I've been involved in. And um, so Lost River was the book that came out of that desire. And unfortunately, it's one of those books that you feel never really got the the attention that that you would have hoped that it that it did or, or didn't kind of get um uh you know some of the focus um because I, I thought it had a lot to say uh about the current crisis uh, and some kind of unique things to say and uh i'm terribly proud of the book uh hope it finds life in other other venues and other ways but it was tough time to try to get out and uh and push books uh, during COVID, understandably so. Well, it's interesting because, you know, around the store, you know, you've always been one of our favorites. And um, periodically we'd say, I wonder what Todd's up to. You know, I haven't seen a new book announced yet. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the book was released and I wasn't even aware of it until somebody pointed out this new book, The Flock. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about, about the uh, kind of the background for this book. Was there a particular incident in your own work as a DEA agent that sort of inspired this or wh where did this book come from? Uh, the flock was, you know, as you said earlier, kind of a departure from, from what I had done before. Um, but I had long had an interest in kind of, I don't know, horror, but I mean, I think the flock kind of touches some horror elements. Uh, you know, people who've heard me talk before know that I actually got agented on a book that was much more in the wheelhouse of a Stephen King book or a Dean Koontz book, much more like what Philip is doing. Um, so, but that book didn't sell. And as a result of that book not selling, I wrote The Far Empty. And of course, obviously, we're all excited <laughs> with how that turned out. But uh, I still had a kind of an interest in in that kind of genre, the kind of horrorish, thrillerish uh, genre, and I'd long wanted to write a book about uh, a cult, and um, it just so happened that, you know, you had COVID going on. This book was written, you know, during that time. Um, you know, you're kind of locked up, cloistered at home. Uh, it's easy to think about conspiracies and all sorts of things, uh, and, and maybe the end of the world, so that all kind of came together in, a, in an idea I'd been uh, kind of nurturing for, for a while, and, um, you know, again, the end result was the flock, so. Right. Now, Philip, um, tell us a little bit about, about the inspiration. We'll just kind of go back and forth if that's cool with you guys and let you talk to each other, of course. Um, you know, but you've written a number of shorter, shorter pieces, novellas and, and so forth, yet making the way to this much larger canvas, the sort of epic, as I said, canvas that kind of combines a lot of different elements of storytelling. You know, I, I see a lot of classic noir riffs in here, uh, along with some old school you know, the dust jacket mentioned Robert McCammon, and I was thinking about some of those books that I read a long time ago, you know, Boy's Life and uh, Going South and all those those books. Talk about talk about Child Alone with Strangers, the basic idea and how you came to write it. Yeah, well, I, I first want to say to, to Todd that I discovered Todd through Lost River. And then I went back and bought the border books. So don't oh. feel like you nobody saw the book because I saw the book. And then I went back and bought all your books in like nice hardcover edition. So I have them all downstairs. Um, uh, a Child Alone uh, with Strangers. Yeah, so I was kind of cutting my teeth on short fiction. I haven't been doing this very long. I've only been writing, I've only been writing genre fiction since about 2015. And um, I got agented kind of out of the gate and the, um, after I, I only had a, like a, a story collection come out, maybe a few other stories, and 
and he said, "Look, you can you can you can keep writing short stories and and express yourself in that format, um, or you can write novels and have a career." And um, so I was like, "All right, well, I will write a novel." And I, I now have a, that was my agent number one. I'm not now an agent number three, but. Um, but yeah, so when I when I when I was thinking about what that first novel would be, and I have written other, I'd written three novels prior that were not genre novels. Um, uh, kind of the opposite, I guess, a little bit of what Todd was saying is I, I I was writing more like literary kind of dark fiction, but not not supernatural or horror, and um, and they didn't really go anywhere. But so I was thinking about what I wanted my first genre novel to be, and I was kind of thinking that I wanted it to be sort of a kitchen sink book. I wanted to have all the cool stuff that I grew up with, you know, reading Kuntz and King and Barker and McCammon. And it's like, I want to have a, you know, uh, uh, I want to have a telepathic kid. I want to have a creature in the woods. I want to have an old scary house. And I just, and I, and I, and I just, I kind of want it to be a big, fun, sprawling, epic, like the kind of book you lose yourself in and you're staying up late to read, you know, when you're a 14 year old kid or whatever. And, um, and so I, yeah, I knew I wanted it to be a big book. I knew I had a, I, I knew it was a big story. I knew there was a lot of characters and, you know, to track um, and to explore. And um, so, yeah, so that was kind of, that was kind of how it started. And the, I think I added the, you know, so it kind of, it's sort of, as you mentioned, it's a mashup. It's sort of a, it's a bit of a police procedural in a way where you follow the kidnapping and what the FBI is doing and the police are doing it to find the child who's been abducted. And then it's half kind of a straight up horror novel. And, um, and it's kind of goes back and forth a little bit until the last act where it all kind of comes together. So, um, yeah, it just kind of grew organically. So when I have, I think I think I started with the idea of the of the boy being kidnapped. I think I liked the idea of him having telepathic powers and screwing with the kidnappers. Mm-hmm. And then I think when I had the idea of um, a monster creature, uh, kind of this unknown variable. Uh, in the woods outside this house where they were keeping him, it all kind of came 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 together like um, for me. So from that point on, it was really just a matter of uh, of just getting it down as as fast as I could. And I've written uh, I think three or four novels since that one. Um, really? Uh, yeah. So I've got uh, Child came out, and then I have um, in February I have a book called Gothic mm. that's coming out from yeah, Cemetery exactly. Dance. The yeah, Dance yeah, exactly. Uh huh. Yeah. Yep. And Earthling just put out this really pretty limited edition, but this is like long gone. They only made 250 and they sold out in like 20 minutes, unfortunately. But the um, but yeah, the, the cemetery dance will be trade. And then in July, I have a book called Boys in the Valley, which is coming out from uh, Tor Nightfire in the United States and uh, Orbit in uh, the UK Commonwealth countries. So that that's so I've and I have another book called Brothers, which I'm writing right now for June 2024 release from that same tandem of publishers orbit and tour so yeah so lots going on and they have a couple of books that are being shopped um wow, they're hoping to sell yeah one's a sci-fi novel called observe and one's a thriller kind of a straight thriller with a little bit of super with a lot of supernatural a little bit of horror called uh, blue butterfly so we're trying to sell those right now um and then i'm also kind of writing stories and i'm writing a screenplay and other stuff like that but but yeah very happy with the reception so far with trials with strangers um People seem to like it. Uh, reviews have been good, so hopefully it keeps getting out there and people keep discovering it. That's all you can really, to you know, Todd's point. It's all you can really hope for as an author is you can only control so much, and the rest you just kind of hope word of mouth spreads and people like it and they keep talking about it. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and we'll we talked about setting something up coming up in uh, maybe in the summer in June or July here at the Poison Pen, which would be great, and we'll we'll definitely do that. Yeah, um, I love that. One of the things I wanted to ask you uh, was that you know, like like some of these epic, definitely Stephen King and some of the people Straub and people you've suggested, um, there are a lot of deep themes going on in in your book. You know, it's. Uh, you know, there's there are all these different elements, but there's some heavy heavy themes of you know pain and loss, you know, um, uh, compassion and empathy and things like that, all going on with this with this nine year old kid. Uh, yeah, were you kind of was that just something that kind of those themes just kind of came out of his his own pain, his own experience? Well, I think, you know, I, I think I, when I do supernatural, I tend to. I do it for a reason. Um, when I do horror, I do it for a reason. It, it's to it's to serve the story and to serve the characters. I you know I I, I try not to have it something that's outside of the story. And if, if that makes sense, it, it's it, I want it to be feel very integrated. I want it to feel very real. I guess would be the best way to put it. Um, very grounded. So so like that like you're describing the character. So the point being is the characters are very important to me, and um, and I want the characters to be very real. Um, I want them to have very real uh, feelings that readers would connect with easily, um, real emotions. You know, the you know, I was um, speaking to someone about this book on uh, on, a, on a podcast, and they were saying how complex the villains were, and um, how how you know they they were, they were like reading, and they're like, I wasn't really sure how to feel about anybody, you know, with maybe one or two exceptions, because the villains all had these backstories that kind of humanized them, and. And um, and Henry, the nine-year-old boy, is so complex, and he has, you know, he goes through a lot of different things, and and um, so I think it's it, and he does some things that are maybe questionable too. So so it's you know I try to make all my characters and all my stories and books very real. It's very important to me that they're very grounded in reality, and that all the horror and supernatural stuff serves the characters versus the characters serving the supernatural and the horror. So um, I guess I always am thinking about. Uh, writing my characters in that way, I guess to your point, uh, thematically, uh, just making sure that they're um, very real and and that they have real emotions and that the that readers can empathize with them. Because I think once the readers empathize with your characters, then it makes the horror that much more horrible. And and it gets and makes um, when the danger enters, you know, I think the you know readers are more interested and they really want to know what happens next. Right. So I always try and spend a lot of time building up building up my characters, whether they're villains or, or heroes or, you know, protagonists or antagonists or whatever the case is. And that's why I think that the Stephen King, um, you know, comparisons are valid and good, right? I mean, because the best Stephen King novels are, are really grounded in these fantastic characters, um, you know. Um, and so, you know, if you think about The Stand and you think about Dead Zone and you think about Carrie, I mean, even the villains are three-dimensional and have this texture and reality to them. And, and they're horror novels, but to me, always only in the loosest sense of the term. I mean, The Dead Zone's a horror novel because horrible things happen, but you know, there's not really ghosts or demons or vampires or, or, or things like that. And I think A Child Alone is a lot, treads a lot closer to that territory. You've got this broadcast, you know, broad uh, net of really, really interesting characters. Um, 
in this really, really unusual, difficult situation and kind of how they interact and bounce off of each other, uh, how they react to the horrible situations around them is is what the horror of it is. But at heart, it's about really yeah. interesting, uh, sometimes empathetic, sometimes sympathetic, uh, sometimes really, really unlikable characters doing things. And, um, you know, that's why when I, and, and, it, and it's interesting, Patrick, because I think both books are kind of similar. They both involve a child who's been kidnapped, a child who yeah. may have unique abilities. They both involve um, kind of police procedurals. So people who would otherwise maybe say, well, I don't really want to, you know, touch a horror book. I mean, these are horror adjacent, right? I mean, they have horrible things, but, you know, there's definitely mystery and thriller aspects and these kind of police procedural aspects. So the books are kind of two sides of the same coin in many respects, or at least yeah. kind of, you know, walking on the same path of, of what they're trying trying to do. Right. Well, it's, it's you know, they touch upon, you know, universal fears, you know, and right. primal primal fears that we all have in some ways. And I was interested in thinking about you know, one of the dust jacket copy mentioned Laird Barron, who I really like a lot, you know, and who's been here to the store several times. Great writer, great guy. And, yeah. and, and also John Connolly a little bit, the Irish writer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, they, they tap into this forest mythology or folklore. Uh, and I'm thinking, you know, is that maybe like a Teutonic sort of mythology as, and how, you know, how do the monsters of the forest differ from you know, the monsters of the desert, say, or different different elements. Can you speak to that at all, Philip? Uh, yeah, the monster is interesting because I really gave it a lot of thought and I I I wanted her to be um uh we should, we should have it, spoilers by the way. So if, right. If so I'm gonna right I'm gonna try and do it in a very non-spoiler way. I, I think yeah. it's okay. I think the creature in the woods is in the I think it's in like the jacket copy. So I think we're yeah. okay. But yeah, but I wanted her very um a, a kind of a combination of uh, myth and reality. And so her features are based in, we'll say, um, biology. Okay, not, not human biology, but earthly biology. Uh, but she's also has a, there's also like this, this um, alluded to history to, to, to her. And uh, interestingly, you know, um, well, that would be a spoiler, but so we'll just say, but yeah, and I, I think I'm writing a book right now called um, Brothers, for example, it, it, which ties into this conversation a little bit, because one of the things that I like to do is I don't necessarily like to hold myself hostage to, as a writer, to what has come before me. Um, and my, my attitude about coming up with creatures or coming up with, um, uh, you know, uh, otherworldly or inhuman uh, entities is that, you know, I don't feel like I'm beholden to other writers or other stories. I don't feel like it has to fit into a category. Is it a witch? Is it a zombie? Is it a vampire? Is it, I, I, in my mind, I can have, you know, my creatures can be whatever I want them to be. So um, I like to, I like playing with creating original uh, characters and ideas and kind of tying them into like very old mythology kind of mixed with like sort of my own kind of made up mythology and so i think this is an example of that which is where i really wanted to do something that was completely original and not feel like i had to tie uh that character 
into something that was pre-existing. And I'm doing the same thing with, with Brothers, which is there's another uh, um, uh, entity where um, this during the Civil War period, which is um, not categorizable. And I think, and so, and I, I really like that. I don't see any reason to always try with genre fiction to necessarily be like, this is a werewolf novel. This is a vampire novel. This is, and I don't like categories and I don't like being confined. So when I write, I'd like to just kind of like go straight from, you know, from the ground up and build something new. Um, and I think that's kind of what I tried to do with Mother in, um, in this book. Yeah, I love writers who do that. You know, there, I mean, there are a couple of, that come to mind. Uh, one of my favorites is Frederick Brown. I don't know if you know his. Oh, yeah, his sure. You know, you read a Frederick Brown story and you're not sure what the hell is going to happen. You know, <laughs> yeah. it could seem like a complete like set piece, uh, you know. There are a number of the 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 guy in the lab late at night <laughs> kind of <laughs> setups that just go off into this weird, crazy. Uh, I, I love that, you know. I love that element also of classic pulp fiction, you know, mm -hmm. of, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, where all, there's all this interesting, as you say, they were creating genres, you know, out of just purely out of the imagination. And yeah, they weren't thinking about they weren't thinking about bookstore. This is not a negative thing about bookstores. They weren't thinking <laughs> about placement. They weren't thinking about marketing. They weren't thinking about that stuff. They were just writing whatever they felt like writing. And, and you know, Todd and I have sp spoken about this in the in the past, where he was like, "I think this next book's going to be it's going to be like a horror novel." And I and he and I remember being like very excited about that. And I think what and that I, I want to talk about the flock a little bit because what 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 I really like about horror or what I really like about horror versus like sci-fi or fantasy or even crime or even thriller in a way is that there are there are no boundaries there are no preconceived notions i mean there are preconceived notions with readers but but there's no with sci-fi you sort of have to play within certain rules with fantasy you have to sort of play within certain rules and i think with horror you can it's kind of anything goes to your point about frederick brown who's amazing is like you can do anything you want and i thought that was was interesting with the flock was because it was i read uh todd's dea novels and i remember thinking like boy to combine this kind of really intense knowledge of crime and criminal and procedural police procedural kind of stuff with something supernatural um, would be so much fun. And and the flock was a great example of of that. You know, I spoke after I read it early on, and um, and I just loved that. I loved the, that mashup of like uh, you know apocalyptic meets like procedural kidnapping, you know, murder slash you know, homicide or whatever. A little bit of Hitchcock thrown in too, man. I mean- Yeah, it's a mystery all, too, exactly, yeah. All the wonderful bird kind of symbolism and, you know, that whole architecture that you create in the book. I thought was, can you talk a little bit about that as we ease our way into the flock here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely um, had the strong bird imagery throughout that, that, that thing. Um, uh, and obviously they did a great job uh, Thomas and Mercer did, did a great job with the cover, uh, with kind of the birds also mimicking flames. And, you know, I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit on, on my cult, right? Like I wanted to create a cult that was believable um, and had some consistency to it, uh, but I didn't want to like recruit people to a cult. So writing the, this book, I had to go back and forth about what the mythology, you know, Philip was talking about kind of mythology and stuff like that, what the mythology of this cult was, what the people believed, uh, how much of that I wanted to introduce in the book, because again, I didn't want it to be a how-to manual on how to create a cult. But I think the main thing that I wanted to do with this book is 
you know, cults are mysterious and enigmatic and, and they kind of defy explanation in many ways. And so I wanted to, to structure the book to reflect that. So in a typical book like this, you'd have an A and B narrative, like, like a present right. past. Uh, so you have this, the, the kidnapping that go on in the present, and then you would go uh, have these alternating chapters where you would have a, a B story that would take place when the cult was at its most active, and you'd kind of see how the cult has changed over time. That would have been a, a, a completely legitimate way of writing this book. But I wanted to do kind of this puzzle, mystery, um, enigmatic thing. So my backstory of the cult is done in all these kind of epistolary things. And I very much wanted to write a book in that vein. So the backstory all is, you know, um, uh, FBI reports and medical examiner's reports and uh, birth certificates and newspaper articles and even script pages you know, because this cult had been famous for, for a while. And so, and each of those things is kind of presented out of time, out of order. Uh, so the, your view as a reader of the cult is influenced by all these other people's view of it as well. And just like we can't explain necessarily why people are drawn to cults or how they operate as a reader, it's very difficult for you to kind of get a sense of exactly the reality that this cult was operating in. It's real slippery, right? I mean, who's telling the truth? Who really believes what, you know, what they say they believe and what really happened 10 years ago uh, and what's happening now with, with the main characters. So um, that was the fun of writing this book, not just writing about a cult, but structuring the book the way I did, which I honestly won't do again because it's kind of a pain in the ass to, to, to do. Um, but uh, it was enjoyable to do it while I was while I was putting the book together. And 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 when you set the book, you know, obviously it goes it goes a little bit out into the future, a couple right. a couple of years, not too far. Right. Um, but uh, you know, the, let's talk a little bit about some of the basics of, of these cults. You know, there's some what they have in common. Uh, the way you present them in the book, um, you know, a lot of them have this sort of messianic figure. Right. Uh, uh, in this particular case, there's like some scam where you pay, you pay in, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, and they very much prey upon the vulnerable. Right. Uh, and uh, I couldn't help but think, forgive me, people, if there's anybody watching, but Scientology, <laughs> you know, as part of that racket, you know, and. You think about you know Waco, of course, and Jonestown. Yeah. There are certain, you know, what what are some of the are some of the main beats that you included in the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I consciously, very consciously, drew from real cults and yeah. kind of put it all in a blender. Uh, and you hit a lot of them, as well as the uh, the one that's uh, uh, been in the news a lot uh, lately. Um, that the Vow series is about. That's the, right. the Rainier character. That's very much, you know, he, he was tossed in the mix. You know, I name check a lot of actual cults in there. Um, and I did a lot of, you know, a lot of research. I didn't have to research all the cop stuff. I didn't have to do, research the cult stuff. And so I wanted this cult to be very much a product of the 21st century. Um, so there's a lot of stuff about the internet and memes and then you connecting via the internet and this kind of self-actualization and uh you know um 
all wellness being a little bit, all of that kind of thrown in there because that's, we see that nowadays. We see that on the internet. Uh, we see a lot of that stuff, this idea of kind of conspiracy, conspiracies and conspiracies. I mean, I'm not a topical writer. I don't, I, I didn't pick this book to write at this time because well, this is what was going on in the world, but it definitely had a kind of unusual synergy where uh, the things I wanted to write about, it wasn't very hard to find real world examples of it and just to sand off the name, give it a new coat of paint and toss it, toss it in the mix. And, but I, that I, I wanted the cult to be modern and to use modern techniques in a way that it approached people. Um, and, you know, I think that's reflected in both versions of the cult that we see uh, in the flock. Um, um, can I interject real, real quick with one question? I was just, I was going to say, you know, it was a really fascinating decision uh, was to um, the, and I don't, this is a spoiler, is the, um, the family, the family drama within the cult was like kind of an, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of, uh, it kind of like doubled down on all the tension that you know, already built into that kind of situation. The two uh, but on top of, sorry. The two sisters. Yeah, the sisters, yeah, the sisters yeah. and the and and the and the daughter, right? And, right? and just kind of like that relationship. I don't, again don't want to spoil anything, but I thought that was a that was really engaging. Um, their relationship and how it kind of yeah, the but, cult, yeah. How, how the cult influenced it over the over the course of years, right? You know? Because I yeah, because these cults are such kind of finely tuned environments right like they're these hermetically sealed environments mm -hmm. that um and they have to be that way because if reality intrudes then they don't work right which is why these cults tend to kind of be off on their own and and, and, and that sort of thing so there are these kind of own little mini universes and but yet you have all the passions and prejudices and and guilt and and anger um in these little mini communities Right. But so much of that is out of sight. You know, we don't see a lot of that. Um, so I just tried to imagine what it would be like uh, to have some really, really difficult family dynamics also driving this cult. And again, kind of underlying who really believes what does anyone really believe this stuff? Yeah. Right? You know, um, but we and how the mythology of the cult was a kind of ever evolving in a way yeah ever evolving yeah. right as yeah. other people were brought into it as people put their own kind of uh, opinions on it and which I is how real religion is <laughs> right right and so i wanted readers to do that too right as they caught each clue as they read about each new character you know as they saw how people changed over time then their opinions of the cult would change over time too um, but it, you know, it's a difficult way to write write a book. Um, it's polarizing, I think. You know, you're talking about the reception uh, of a child alone, which has been universally great. Everyone I've talked to who's read it has loved it. You know, the flock has been people who who like what I did with the epistolary stuff really like it. People who who don't really don't right. And and you you know that going into it when you when you structure a book this way that it's that it may not work for everyone but i thought the upside was was worth it because i just thought it was a really interesting way to tell a story that's really not new i mean you know it's a story about a cult there's a lot of cult stories there's been a lot of cult stories lately but i thought the 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 engine that i used you know used to drive this car was a little bit a little bit different now do most do most cults would it be accurate to say have that doomsday sort of uh vibe to them you know it's like there is this apoc there's day of reckoning coming and 
Only you know, chosen I, few will survive kind of thing. I, I think most cults ultimately uh, kind of, you know, a vanishing point there, right? You know, because in, in order to, to kind of continue to hold people close and pull people in, you have to continue to promise something, right? Uh, or you have to continue to instill such a fear in them right. that, they, that they stay. So I think even the most, um, you know, a, a cult that starts without necessarily talking about the apocalypse always ends there uh, right. when, when all said said and done. Because I don't know how else they can end, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, how did you guys kind of become aware of each other in your books? I don't. I don't want to get in the way here. If you guys, why don't you talk to each other about about your work? And I'll I'll dip in with some questions. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Th yeah. I just want to say also Ben, to what you know you were saying, Todd, is I think also um, the apocalyptic thing and the doomsday thing is what's also fascinating about. Um, which I think is very unique with your book is that um, you you take the element of like what's real, what isn't real, right? But yeah. then you but then you ground the book in so much reality with the very like I think there's correct me if I'm wrong. I thought they're, they're like court yeah court uh, documents, documents yeah. court documents and 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 the autopsy stuff, which is all very like because <laughs> this is what you do probably part a good part of your living is yeah. is dealing with this kind of stuff. But so it's all very real, right? And then. And so it makes the question mark side of the story even more fascinating because you're kind of like, you know, I mean, it adds a layer of like, well, I feel like I should really believe this because this is all very believable. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting uh, way to kind of play with the readers, you know, right. what's real, what isn't real. Right. Sort of thing. And, that's, and that's exactly what I wanted, wanted to do, have that really, really real stuff versus stuff that the reader has to kind of say well i don't know maybe right you know yeah and it's interesting that you decided to use that to to create the background for the call because a normal thriller and what you'd say is you just story 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 and then you kind of pick up pieces from what the dialogue would be or what the actors the characters interacting interaction would be so i thought that was an interesting choice um this as far as how don and i met i we know i'm just on a line i think you i think just I think you mentioned one of my books once, and I was like, "Whoa, you're a fan of my." Well, of well, my books. it was it, yeah, it was your book of short stories, um, beneath the pale sky, I think, right? Right, beneath the pale sky, and I had actually read a review of it in Publishers Weekly in Atlanta, um, and thought, "Wow, that sounds that sounds pretty good." I'm a big uh, Laird Barron uh, fan, and it sounded yeah. very much, you know, like his stuff. And I met Laird, and, and Laird's actually been very supportive of my of my writing as well. You know, it's interesting. Philip and I have moved from kind of crime or, or literary dark fiction into genre fiction, and Laird for a little bit has moved from genre fiction uh, into crime novels. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, so shows we're all kind of working on. You know, out of the same stuff, but. Um, in any event, I picked that up and read it and thought it was great. And, you know, I, I always try to, to call out writers whose stuff I've liked and who I've been impressed with. Because um, no, when I put up on Instagram or, or Twitter or any of my own stuff, people ignore it. It's, it's crickets, right? You know, but if you put up bourbon you're drinking, dog photos, or if you name check other authors, then people like that and so I, I think I did that and then we kind of started corresponding as you do back and forth on, on Twitter and um, you mentioned 
uh, a child alone and asked if I'd be interested in, in taking an early look at it, which I did and thought it was fantastic. And that's just kind of how, how yeah. it was. But, um, you know, he's a tremendous short story writer. And, and you know, the, the Beneath a Pale Sky is a, is a wonderful book to read. But I, you know, I, it's tough to make a living. Your your agent was definitely right. It's tough to make a living writing short stories. Um, and I'm a shitty short story writer. I've written a couple um, and in anthologies, and I was always the, the worst short story writer uh, in, in the in the book because I it's just a really really unique uh, talent to be able to write high quality engaging short story or novella length pieces. And um, Philip can do that. And if you can do if you can do that, I think it's a lot easier to expand out to novels. I think it's hard to start as a novelist and work your way back to writing short stories, or at least it's been hard for me. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was funny when and when Todd commented on my book, I immediately replied with a photo of my right. <laughs> of, my, of my J. Todd Scott first first edition uh, hardcover collection of every book he's ever put out. So. Um, which is very a big thrill for me. It's one of the things about Twitter, you know, for all the nice negatives about it, it is I've met so many friends and writers and uh, through that, you know, through social media. So I, I never say anything bad about it. I mean, obviously there's problems with that stuff, but um, but boy, yeah. it's such a great way to reach out to people you would never, ever, ever be able to interact with. Well, and for uh, me, you know, and you I, know. Can't, I can't speak for Philip, but for me, I don't have a literary community. I mean, I... You know, I have a full day job that has nothing to do with books. So, you know, other than when I do a book release and can, can for a couple of weeks, pretend to be an author, you know, I, I don't have any other outlets. So the only time I really can interact with other writers is through social media, you know, and again, it's got a lot of limitations and, and plenty of issues, but I've met most of the authors I know uh, via that media as opposed to anything else. Um, well, in, in the before times... Uh, All right. <laughs> we had some great events here at the store where we did oh. some, yeah, yeah, with yeah, Willie Lawton and you know. Oh yeah, and, no, and, and uh, yeah, been, and, oh yeah, I've been very fortunate to come out and and, and host those events there, um, and those are f fantastic. But um, I'm not, of course, I'm not in Arizona anymore. But <laughs> right. um, you know, but that's how Phil and I met, and mutual admiration, and 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 both writing, I think, books that we found very very interesting and it's always great when another writer that you admire likes likes what you're doing and you know I was surprised that he was really interested in my stuff because it was quite a bit different than than what at the time the short stories I was reading but um yeah. you know then I read the, the full text of Child Alone and I was like oh yeah I can see why we would really like the same stuff because um you know the greatest compliment I think you can give another writer is like man I wish I had written that book and, you know, I got about midway through uh, A Child Alone, I turned to my wife and said, damn, I really wish I'd written this book. <laughs> because, it, you know, it was great. It touched on all the sort of things that I like and characterization and dialogue, and it's got kind of propulsive action. And, uh, you know, I'm a fan of big books. Big books are tough to write. You know, um, all my earlier uh, Big Ben series books are, are big, long books. Uh, I like working on that canvas and a child alone is like that. So it touched on everything. And I was like, damn, I really wish I had written this book. So, Actually, so wait. Oh, sorry, Patrick, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, you both that question about, about the large canvas. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the, 
what are some of the the uh, the challenges of writing going from the shorter form into the longer form? You know, keeping the intensity going. Um, can you talk talk to that a little bit? You know, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, I like I said, I've written I think four books since I wrote Child, and and I wrote three novels before Child, and none of them are the length of Child and Always Strangers. So. I really served the story. And when it's actually sort of interesting because when I wrote, um, when I was first writing Child, when I was with agent number one, uh, um, he kept trying to um, make me write something different. He wanted me to write a very short crime novel and he kept trying to fit Child into this different shape. And I was, and, and normally I'm, I'm I'm really not that resistant to that kind of thing. I'm not, you know, that, you know, I'm not like the uh, the painter that gets upset if the, you know, the lighting is wrong on the canvas or whatever. But I was kind of like, no, I, I have a very clear vision of what this book is and that's not, that's not it. And he was like, well, you're hurting yourself by writing a novel this long because you're a first time novelist and nobody's gonna wanna buy a 175,000 word novel and um or 600 page novel in human terms and um and i was like but that's just it is it is what it is and when my current agent who's been with me for three years when we were actually shopping it we actually had an offer um from a publisher who wanted to publish it but they would have asked me to have cut fifty thousand words and i and i and i said no i and this is you know this is that was not an easy decision for me i'm i had never been offered a publishing deal so um for a novel and so um you know but I I was just I just knew very clearly in my head what this book was and the story I wanted to tell and the way I had to tell the story but it's not um but I haven't you know the, the other novels I you know Boys in the Valley, Gothic, um, Observe, uh, Blue Butterfly those were all in the 80 to 90 thousand word count um because that's what the story called for so to answer your question about the short story versus no novel, um, I approach them completely differently. Um, I approach novels much the same way I would approach a screenplay, um, which is that I have um, an insanely detailed structure, an outline uh, that I work that I that I build that takes me probably you know, depending but on average about three to four weeks, um, where I literally I break the I break down every single chapter notes on every chapter, relationships, I, you know, what am I seeding? What's the misdirection? What is, you know, and that, and then, uh, and then when, that, when that's all done and I feel really good about it, that's on, only then do I begin writing it. And if the story changes while I'm writing it, which is allowed, if the characters evolve ways I didn't foresee, um, then I can go back to that outline and I can go, okay, now I need to kind of like readjust it, but it's much easier to adjust that outline than it is to kind of rethink the novel that I'm writing as you know long form prose. So that's why I work that way. With short stories, um, I usually know the beginning. I know I actually I don't even say that. I know the idea, the core idea, and I know the ending. Um, and then I kind of write basically just uh, from that. Um, I don't do I don't do any sort of structure work or outlining or anything like that with short work. So it's it's very two different, very different approaches. And as Todd can speak to you know, also we've both done screenwriting. Screenwriting is a very technical um, format. You have to, there are a lot of rules. Uh, you can't stray too far from those rules. Um, 
and it's very structured because you are building uh, a foundation for other people to work to work from. So you can't screw around too much. Um, if you're the writer and director and producer and all that stuff, uh, like Quentin Tarantino, you can kind of be a little bit more lucid with it. But so those technical things like that I've learned myself teaching myself, like we're reading guys like John Truby and Sid Field and uh, Blake Snyder and uh, Robert, uh, Robert McKee and all these guys, I apply a lot of that to my screenwriting. And then I have since applied a lot of that into my novel work. Yeah. Um, and and, and but, what's interesting yeah. about and what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, Philip and I couldn't approach novels any more differently, right? Um, now I do plot and, and do outlines and stuff for the screenwriting, but for the novels, even for the flock, even given how how this book was structured, I don't I didn't start with an outline. I just sit and go, and, and I, none of my novels have I outlined. I just start really. Page one word, sentence one, word one, and go. Um, and I don't know that that's the most efficient way to do it. I mean, I know I have a very good sense of the characters by the time I sit down. I mean, I, I know the characters. Um, I know, I always know the beginning, you know, generally know the ending and have no idea how I'm going to get between those two. So, um, you know, the flock was a high wire act. I mean, I'm creating all of that chronology and all of those those individual pieces just every morning when I sit down. Like, I, you know, I've not plotted it out, not thought it out. I know what I want to do. I'm like, yeah, I really think it'd be cool to write some screenplays for a movie that was never filmed for a cult that didn't exist. And <laughs> just, right. you know, start writing some screenplay pages. Um, yeah. So I have to do a lot of revising and I write myself down into some holes at times, but I have never pre-plotted or outlined uh, a book at all. So, Well, what I've discovered is that my, my way of doing things is actually not the norm. I, I think a lot of writers do exactly what you're describing is they just, they just, Stephen King isn't a great example of somebody who just go, you know, writes from the hip. So um it, it, it seems like I would just, I think I would just be too terrified to do it that way. I don't think I had the, I don't think I had the self-confidence to write a book that way. I think it's well, what it comes the, down the, to. The, pro, the, the, the thing is I didn't have the sense to do it any other way. Like when I started writing, <laughs> Life, Life, yeah. I just said, I, you know, didn't really know how writers wrote books. I just started writing. So, you know, I didn't have any fear, right? Cause I didn't know any better. Yeah. And then you just kind of get in the habit of doing it that way. And you're like, well, all right, it works. Uh, so let's just kind of keep keep going. And and I have a system where I kind of, you know, outline as I go as I'm writing a book. I often keep some note cards and, you know, kind of because, you know, there's some math when writing and even writing a novel, you know, kind of. So I, I build the outline out as I go. So that way, when I'm done, when I have to revise the book, I have an outline that I've built so I can kind of start moving pieces around. But that initial draft, it's just me kind of shotgunning words onto the page and you know, hoping it makes sense by the time I'm done. You know, it occurs to me that we haven't really, let's talk a little bit about, we talked about the cult and, and so forth. Let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book. It begins, if I'm not mistaken, 10 years after the, right. the dissolution of the, of the cult. Mm -hmm. You know, the, can you talk a little bit about just the, the basic setup of the novel? Yeah, the, the there yeah there actually is a a plot and not just a, a cult how to 
uh, book. So it, it takes place 10 years after the kind of fiery demise of the original version of the cult, which is called the Ark, Ark of Lazarus. And uh, it involves a uh, surviving cult member she was a young girl at the time or a teenage-ish girl uh, at the time. She since changed her name and identity and tried to kind of move on with her life uh, and also with a young daughter. They're actually the only two survivors of this um, th this cult. Well, when the cult actually kind of went up in flames, they're, they're two of the last survivors. Um, and the start of the book is our main character, uh, Sibylla or Billy, um, you know, uh, she's living kind of a, a nondescript life uh, in Colorado. Again, she's had multiple identities uh, because this cult was somewhat infamous. Um, and she's just trying to kind of uh, get on with her life while still, uh, you know, dealing with the trauma and the stress and the beliefs that she was grown up with. You know, she spends a lot of time still watching for all the signs that she kind of, you know, was braised with. Uh, and if you look hard enough, you can almost always find them. But, uh, you know, her family's attacked. Her her husband is killed. This all happens in the very early part of the book. Um, and her daughter is taken. And um, the, the main thrust of the book is Billy's attempt to recover her daughter, who appears to have been uh, taken by kind of a reinvigorated version of the Ark of Lazarus, some believers who've connected on the internet and um, have decided that her daughter holds the key to the to the future of the cult and, may, and maybe the world. Um, so that's kind of the, the actual crime novel, the police procedural, as Billy strikes out to recover her daughter. Um, she's basically running from a crime because her husband's dead and everyone thinks she's done it. Um, and then it's the, the rest of the book uh, is kind of this chasing as she's chasing her daughter and cops and agents are chasing her. And then we have to go back down to New Mexico where it all where it all started. Yeah, yeah. It's all dovetailing toward, um, you know, the, the ruins of the compound where where uh, Billy uh, and her daughter you know, were at one point. Right. And, th and then, I mean, of course, the really scary part that is is what you're talking about, this new new Lazarus cult and and you know you're able to comment on you know uh cults how they operate today in this sort of I hate to say it but like post-truth right. <laughs> internet era which you know all kinds of batshit crazy stuff out there online and there's a very fertile ground for reinvigorated cults um right but, yeah and so yeah she's up against a lot of people who who kind of taken the original ideas of the cult and run with it dramatically. And then it's all takes place against a backdrop of some kind of dramatic events. Birds are falling from the sky. Right. Um, you know, there's massive wildfires uh, out west. Uh, you know, two, um, you know, uh, massive storms are, 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 you know, coming down onto the east coast, hurricanes. Um, so if you're the sort of person, you know, planes are disappearing and, and other yeah. things, if you're the sort of person who believes uh, that the end of the world is coming, there are plenty of signs right at the time the book is taking place, which would indicate that, that maybe uh, it is. Right. Now, before I go into some questions here from the audience, I just wanted to double back a little bit and ask you, Philip, about just a little bit more about, about Henry, because he's such an interesting character. And, you know, he has this... Uh, uh, this accident that we learned about at the very beginning of the book, and I'm trying to be careful not to do spoilers, but um, he wakes up from a coma to find that he has 
lots of new skills, you know, which can be in some ways a blessing and a curse, you know, depending upon how you look at it. Um, can you talk a little bit about about that or? Yeah, I mean, I think, what, right. So he goes to a very traumatic event, the poor kid. And I think what I wanted to get across in that opening um, section was I really wanted the reader to feel the confusion that Henry was feeling when it came to like, well, wait a minute, what's what's happening? Like what's happening? Not just like, oh, cool, I can do this now. It's like, it's very traumatic for him. It's not, mm. <laughs> it's not a happy thing. It's not a gift and it's not, it's not cool. So I think I really wanted to get across that the the pain of what he was going through, um, the feeling of loss, uh, and then also this new dynamic, which was um, which was creating so much confusion for him and so much additional trauma for him to, to process. And I think I actually say in the book, and this is kind of a point I like to make is, you know, kids are so resilient and kids are so um, fascinatingly uh, um, uh, malleable, you know what I mean? That they, they when, when stuff happens to kids, they respond to it in such a different way than an adult would because we're, we're also hard and calloused and we have these shells and everything. And when something weird happens, we're just like, no, 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 no. You know, like I'm not dealing with that. Whereas the kid's like, oh, this is interesting. Like what now, you know, how do I respond to this? And how do I, how do I um, move on with okay. this new element of my life, you know? And so I think Henry's dealing a lot with how to move on. And I also think um, with Henry, it's not just the trauma. It's not just the loss. It's not just the physical trauma. It's not just this new uh, element um, of his mind that he's dealing with, but he's also is a kid that has a lot of very real, um, very normal everyday kid issues. You know, he, he tries to make friends and he's trouble making friends. You know, he's not good at video games. He's not good at sports. Um, he likes to read. He's very smart. So um, he's not a big kid. You know, he's not athletic. So there's all these like things that he's dealing with and it's, it's, it's a lot for, for him. And what I, what I love about Henry and what I love about writing kids, frankly, is because um, I think a lot of times um, when you write a kid as a character, they're, they're very 2D. They're very like, this is how I perceive a child to be. And I for me, I approach it in a way that I really feel like I have so much respect for, for kids. I raised a kid, so maybe I'm biased or whatever, but I have so much respect for kids in the sense that they're um, resilient they're so smart. They're, they're sponges when it comes to information. Uh, they're tough, you know, they're tougher than you think they are and they're brave, you know, but they're also this, there's this weird um, amalgam of like bravery and terror. Uh, but like, and I, I, I use this analogy sometimes in, which is like how, how a, a 50 year old responds to, um, to, uh, you know, the closet door is slowly opening and, and a gray hand reaching around. <laughs> Uh, into view is very different than the way a nine-year-old would respond to that. And I think the nine-year-old is much more accepting that what's happening is real. It's a situation that needs to be dealt with and um, and they're going to deal with it. Whereas I think an adult is sort of like maybe rejects it out of hand and just pretends it didn't happen. So uh, Henry is sort of, um, was for me, was a way to workshop a lot of uh, those very raw and innocent emotions and and that malleability of dealing with trauma and 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 forcing yourself to move on. And then later in the story, when he's uh, dealing with the kidnappers, he shows 
you know, incredible bravery. He shows that he's made of tougher stuff than he realized, um, sometimes to his detriment um, in a way, because sometimes he's he's too brave and it gets him in trouble. But um, but so that was kind of that was sort of a lot of fun to to really dive into Henry and um, and create a, this 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 really you know fleshed out character both internally and externally and um yeah and i think and, i think i think sorry but i think when you write you know crime novels but particularly you tend to write a lot of damaged jaded characters right um and kids are far from jaded right, right? And, and so it's just it's a chance to write uh, you know kind of a pandora's box right you, with a kid you're not you're gonna open and you're gonna release a whole bunch of stuff Right. Um, and I think that's the fascinating part of writing younger characters um, that, you know, that they're, even when they're hurt, they're not necessarily always damaged the way some of our adult characters in, in books are. Right. Or at least there's still the chance that they're going to overcome their damage and they're definitely not jaded and cynical. And nowadays crime. Novel, I mean, I, I think that's almost the default mode for most crime novels is is jaded and cynical. And so. You know, Henry is a character in a crime novel. It's got horror, but it's got crime in yeah. it. And he's not jaded and cynical. And I think that's why he, he's an attractive character to write, an attractive character to read. Yeah, even after everything that happens to him, right. he's yep. still he's still swinging. Uh, and I think that's what made him. I mean, yeah, I I love that character. I, w I, I really want to explore him again. Um, I want to do kind of a follow-up book at some point where it's sort of 20 years later 20 years later yeah yeah and i want to and i want to have him as an adult um and and i have some ideas for that but but that, but that that's a down the road thing but but it would be a lot of fun to go back to his world and 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 play in that sandbox a little bit more for sure i like the whole just the general riff that you know the 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 answers are within rather than maybe mm -hmm. without you know he yeah. needs to go inward to find them yeah Let's see, before we wrap up, there's some questions here. Um, let's see here. Thanks everybody for watching too. Um, boy, you both have some real fans on here. Um, a lot of people just saying how much they love your stuff. Child right. is awesome. The Fricasse train is certainly full steam ahead, indeed. Um, let's see, uh, Jeff says, I'd love a prequel with Liam. Oh yeah, so Liam is one of the characters in A Child Alone with Strangers. He's one of the bad guys. <laughs> uh, I uh, there's a little bit of a prequel in the book uh, where you get to know what, how he got to to where he uh, where he um, is when you first meet him. Um, yeah, I don't know. Prequel would be interesting. I do want to do a prequel of um, well, if I if I were to write a sequel with Henry later, I would like to get more into um, the creatures' background. Okay. And where she came from, and and that whole world. I have some ideas there too, but Liam, I think, is wrapped. Now, was Jim <laughs> was Jim Katie? Was that was that a, a slight nod to Cape Fear, uh, John D. McDonald's character? No. Uh, was but, it? Wasn't it Jim Katie? Is there? It, was it Jim? I, I don't have no idea. Max? Was it Max Katie? Oh, was it Max? Yeah, you're right. Excuse me, Max Katie. So sorry. no <laughs> coincidence that Katie sounds like a cool villain name. My God, great, great. <laughs> no, originally, uh, and Todd will appreciate this. No, originally, um, he was uh, Jim Barron, and I was. It was. It was an homage to my friend Laird Barron. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, but then I realized that it might be too on the nose. 
because people know that Larry and I are friends, and I was like, maybe it'd be too distracting, so I changed it to Katie. Uh, let's see. Emily Ann uh, says, I wonder if a collaboration between Philip and Todd is out of the question. I think the outcome would be awesome. That would be interesting. Yeah, we could be, uh, was it uh, Straub and King, right? You know? Yeah. yeah. So he never. Would, uh, he would come with this tremendous outline, and I would come with a bunch of uh, random pages. <laughs> Uh, we'd somehow try to try to try to make that work you know i, I right. think the, I, I think the thing that um you know i i hope that philip and i can talk about is is a, you know doing a screenplay or something like that because you know i think we both have an interest in in that uh realm we both had a, you know worked in that area a little bit um and so you know developing a, a you know a pitches in a tv series or a screenplay stuff like that that's the exact sort of thing that you know guys like us would love to sit around over a, a hazy ipa or a bourbon and uh and debate and discuss right uh yeah i'm totally i'm gonna say right now publicly i'm totally on board with that idea i would <laughs> that'd be that'd be uh that'd be so much fun i mean what's funny about um todd is that sometimes when i'm messaging or emailing i'm feeling bad because i'm like this guy's like actually trying to like make the world a better place right now by like stopping, <laughs> by like stopping criminals and then things like that. And I'm like asking him questions about my neck horror book or whatever. I feel kind of silly, but um, but yeah, when, maybe after he's retired from saving the world, uh, I would love to do a collaboration. That, that screenplay would be a lot of fun. I think we could. Yeah, I'm on board. That's cool. There's a good question here from Mitch. Um, I should have asked this too. Uh, how did you, Philip, come up with Henry's ability to see colors and not just read minds? Um, let's see. And how did you decide which colors represented what emotions or feelings? I love this take on telepathy. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, you know, <laughs> the colors thing was sort of something that just came to me when I was writing. Uh, so that was pretty spontaneous. Um, I, it, yeah, it is, it is a thing. It is. Yeah, it is a thing. Uh, and I did research it a little bit. Um, I think I wanted him, I think with Henry, I didn't want his abilities to be, for lack of a better word, I didn't want them to be cliche. I didn't want them to be well-tread. I wanted them to be something new. Um, and I also, so I think the colors were a way for me to sort of like, um, express to the reader how Henry is experiencing thoughts and emotions. It's not just like, he's not just reading minds. He's not just, uh, you know, um, uh, knowing the future. He's not, it, it's, it's it's not just that black and white. And I, and I have some interesting scenes with Henry and like a child psychologist where he's, where he's being forced to kind of guess these Zener cards and things like that. And one of the points I make during those scenes, and this is not a spoiler, I don't think, is that, it's not so much Henry's ability to see what um, what can't be seen. It's Henry's ability to see through the eyes of somebody else. And um, and so that was kind of a play on what Henry's abilities really are. And the colors thing was just sort of a way for me to kind of like creatively express how he, because he doesn't just read thoughts, he reads emotions, right, too. So it's like he sees bright reds and dark purples and he you know and, and it's like hate and his rage and all these kind of things so i think the colors as far as choices was concerned was pretty much just like i think it was pretty obvious as far as like using the palette you know of of what you would think of like 
a, a brown or a purple or a red or a yellow or a blue would would the way it makes you feel is pretty much kind of how I how I played it across the board. I think, you know, they they weren't too specific um, as to they were more just kind of like how you would generally accept red is angry, blue is peaceful, you know, green is peaceful, that kind of thing. But I did like playing with that a lot, and that was to to Todd's graphic the idea behind the cover, which I gave to Skyhorse, which was like I just want I had this idea of like Henry being this this like um I just really really this, yeah this sort of like a, this bright colored child um and that like, was what that was what the designer came up with yeah, with yeah I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of like a prism in many ways right and the emotions of others flow through him and they kind of yeah. broke into their mm. respective uh, senses or feelings yeah, yeah and it gets him in trouble because he because he he opens his mouth a couple times and talks about what he what he's right. feeling from other people and uh and they don't people don't like they don't like to be read that way right so um so yeah there's some interesting and it was there's some interesting things i could play with in the book to that that uh, kind of accelerated or escalated maybe a better word to use um sort of the responses to his to his cap you know to his captors uh to him uh both good and bad right um let's see here well let's Let's uh, go ahead and, and wrap it up. It looks like we're, let me see if I have any more questions here. Um, yeah, uh, Jason says, the colors spoke directly to me because my son described numbers as colors when he was young. It was wild. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Yeah, synesthesia, there's a lot There's a lot to that, you know. Um, we had a discussion with, uh, uh, you know, the big best-selling writer, David Baldacci. Uh, one sure. Of one of his characters uh, has synesthesia, and we got into a pretty interesting top, you know, discussion about that. And um, I started asking about time, uh, time-related synesthesia. You know, where people view time in a certain way, and uh, it's it's pretty interesting to think about. You know, I'm, I I have a, this view of time going back. It's so bizarre. I, I don't know if I want to even bring it up because. <laughs> You guys are going to think I'm insane. <laughs> or we're or we're going to put you in a book. Or we're going to put yeah. You in a book. I was going to say. <laughs> no, but go, please, I was like, like I was this, like, please go on. I'm yeah. yeah. I'm making I'm making notes. Right. It's like this weird tube when I think about it going and it and it goes back in time in my mind and it curves at certain points. It's very odd. And I've always I've always been that way. Um, wow. And Baldacci was talking about how, yeah, some people actually look at this grid surrounding them of time. You know, in time passing. Interesting. Yeah, what book was? What book? Which of his books did he had the reference uh, to that? And do you remember? Was it a recent title? Shoot, I know he writes a lot of books, so it's hard to. It's one of his protagonists. It's not a particular okay. book, and I think it might be the Memory oh. Man. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I, I know that's that series. the character that has the synesthesia. So. I haven't read it yet, but I have. I think I downloaded it when I was doing research. I think it came up in my research. Uh, yeah. you, uh, Patrick, you would love my book Observe, which is all about, um, which is all about uh, time travel, and uh, it's a it's a thriller, time travel thriller, but um, but it's very much based in hard science. And I actually had the opportunity. One of the cool things about doing what we do is I get to speak to people who are experts in certain areas. And when I was writing Child Alone with Strangers, I had I got to off. I got to um, speak often with a CIA agent who um, gave me a lot of insights into how things would work uh, in the '90s, which is when the book takes place. You know, given given uh, what Henry was dealing with and and um, 
and the response teams and all that kind of stuff. So that was really fun. But when I was writing Observe, I got to speak to a, um, I got to speak to a NASA uh, scientist, a physicist, mm -hmm. who uh, specifically deals in, um, in, in physics and um, time, time physics. And also he also, he's the guy who did, um, so whenever you see a movie and you see a spaceship traveling through space and like this, the solar sails open, right? And then, right. like that's how the ship is like juiced or whatever. He's like the guy. He's like the sales guy. <laughs> so he, he's been in like documentaries and books and stuff like that. So he's like the guy who did the sales. So I got to speak to him for a while about Observe, which was really fascinating. And I also got to, um, I got to, uh, I went online to an event just like we're doing now. And Michio Kaku was doing a, um, a Q and A, and I got to ask him a question that is kind of like the key plot point to my uh, novel. Um, and I said, hey, would this work? Because I would based a lot of my information on Kip Thorne and Michio Kaku as far as what I've read as a layman. But I got to ask him, like, if this happened and this happened and this happened, would it actually work? And he responded live that it would. So wow. I, it was a wonderful moment for, for me. Uh, <laughs> cool. I was very validating. Um, but yeah, it's a cool, like, it's so fun to talk to people who are, I mean, Todd is a professional, you know, and when what he does and and um, it's so neat to be able to talk to people who do some of the stuff for a living and work it into your fiction. It's a real, that's one of the, my favorite things about doing. Um, I mean, I, I don't have the resources somewhere like Stephen King has where he like can go, um, you know, spend a week with, you know, wh whoever he wants to spend a week with and learn stuff or have researchers and stuff like that. But I do enjoy learning um, about different things like the Civil War or about time travel or about physics or about crime and how uh, police procedurals work and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's such a cool, um, it's such a cool part of what we do, you know? Yes, definitely. So you, you, Philip, you have, you just mentioned you have like four, four books either in the can or in the works, right? Something like that. What's, yeah, what's, I think it's what's coming out next. Uh, so in February, Gothic is coming out from right. Cemetery Dance uh, in July. That right here. There's yep. the RC. That's it. Yeah, it'd be hardcover, paperback, and ebook and audiobook. And then July, Boys in the Valley. Right. Um, and then uh and then in October I have a new story collection coming out called No One Is Safe. And then in June of 2024, uh, I have a, a new novel coming out called Brothers Brothers, which I have not written yet, but I've sold um to Tor and uh, Orbit. So worldwide release in 2024 for that. Wow. Wow. Now, uh, Todd, what about you? Any, what are you working on next? Well, I have my next book set up. It's called Call the Dark. It comes out uh, about this time, about the same time that uh, The Flock did uh, next year. It's my it's 2023, yes, yeah, 2023 book. Um, you know, it it's kind of touches on a, a, some of the same uh, thematics that, that The Flock did, but um kind of a much more straightforward propulsive narrative not all that epistolary uh stuff but i had some still some uh gas in the tank in that uh area so i want to kind of finish that book so publishers happy with that just finished the last uh couple tweaks and so it'll be out um next next year and i have started the book after that which i think might be another trilogy i don't know that i can give uh many secrets about that. I haven't shown much of it off to my publisher yet, but I'm probably, um, I don't know, seven or 8,000 words down down the rabbit hole with that. 
And um, I think it's going to be a trilogy. I'm introducing some characters that I, I like very much. Um, and uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. So, Is, is Call of the Dark another yeah. horror crime hybrid? Uh, yeah, Todd, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it pulls back a little of the horror and it probably per treads more into straight thriller uh, territory. Um, in the West? Uh, no, actually, Call of the Dark is set in West Virginia. Oh. Um, and it's first book I've set there. It takes place predominantly uh, during a snow. It's one of these books, again, time compressed. Uh, you got a lot of bad people uh, chasing each other uh, over a mountain in a snowstorm. And uh, nice. so yeah uh, you know in, in the wilds of west virginia so uh, that was it was fun to write um sort of book I'd, I'd probably like to flip into a screenplay at some point i think it's got it's got that um but uh excited by it um my editors loved it you know for whatever that's worth um you know they loved it so we'll see what happens when it when it comes out you think you'll go out on the road at all uh, I hope so. I mean, I, I definitely, you know, I wasn't really available to do that this yeah. this year with everything else I had going on. Right. Uh, but I think publishers are more eager to get us out out and about now. I and I'm, so. Yeah, and I'm eager to travel. And uh, I'm long overdue for a visit out west. There's no doubt about that. So be great to see you again. Well, gentlemen, this has been a great hour. Thanks so much. And uh, congratulations on both of your new books. Uh, there we go. Yeah, I got him. Yeah, thank hey, you. Brian. I don't have any props at all, you guys. I just have. <laughs> you have that cool uh, skull on the wall there. Which yeah, I yeah. yeah. It was very writerly. No, it was great, Patrick, uh, for you having us. Uh, Philip, it was great to talk to you uh, in yeah. person, and uh, it's always a pleasure. So thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Patrick. And I can't wait to do an event at Poison Pen next year. It's gonna be. Would love that. Be awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I'll yeah, definitely come out. Guys. Yeah. Definitely come there you out go. for that. Take care. I'm going to be there. Happy holidays. All right. All right. Thanks, Bye. everybody, Bye. for tuning in. Bye. Thanks. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.